Hello and welcome to In Line with Nature, the podcast that explains an approach to building that puts the future of our planet first. With me, Hannah McInnes. In this series, I talk to experts about modern day construction, its impact on the natural world, and why the time for change is now. I'll be talking to our series of guests about new approaches to design, reimagining a built environment that's at one rather than at odds with nature. Hello, good afternoon. My name is Tim Smith. I'm the creator of the Eden Project in Cornwall in the far southwest of England. Tell us about that, the Eden Project, but also how it fits into what your understanding of the built environment is. My passion in life, it might be called the kissing of frogs, taking something that is derelict and poisoned or broken and rotten and restoring it to good heart. And I think most people are moved by that notion. The built environment, of course, is, I don't know how you put it, 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 it's the place where you are either happy or unhappy, where you feel earthed or rooted or belonging or you don't or purposed or unpurposed it is totally important and the Eden project is an exploration in how you can take a derelict uh, former clay mine and transform it into a place of burgeoning abundance which show that humans can uh, working with nature restore it back to heart uh, and also putting humans to work on creating structures that are able to keep a collection housed that is not only stunning in terms of its varieties uh, but also stunning in terms of its technical performance. I mean the light penetration is so so good for example that uh, my staff have to wear barrier cream inside because it doesn't cut out UV. So the built environment means to me the, the way in which humans transform from the natural environment as in the wild to the domesticated And that, of course, takes many, many forms. But I think we've rather understood it as a purely utilitarian thing in which uh, just providing a house or a place to work seemed to be enough. But it isn't. You actually need to have a place where people feel that they are in the community, where they're in a neighbourhood. And I think that's one of the things that we talk about at this particular conference. That's really interesting. This idea of the feel, does that come down to aesthetics and materials and is it therefore just as important as those materials being in themselves environmentally friendly? Your question is a little tricky because I think it is possible to have materials that aren't environmentally friendly which are not immediately um, you know sort of tainting you with their, with their, their, their poison and you might find them acceptable. However I think uh, the materials the materials you use and the craftsmanship or artisanal skills you bring to bear on demonstrating the human contribution to the artifact or product that you're looking at is unbelievably important. And I think uh, there's a lot of evidence, uh, and I can actually give you non-anecdotal anecdotal evidence from um, Eden and at my other place, the Lost Gardens of Heligan, where people comment a lot about things which bear the hand of human work. So, for example, I get far more letters um, at Eden about the quality of uh, of the binding on the bamboo handrails than I do about the whole biomes. 
they just love the fact that somebody did the biome to the, the binding to such a high quality that it's just absolutely beautiful and they also like the fact that butterflies have been carved inside the bamboo in such a way that you only ever see it if you got on your knees and looked in but there's something deeply satisfying that for some people it was worth it like those medieval cathedrals where you look up and you see gargoyles and you suddenly see someone's carved a mouse um people are, are, are quite hungry for in an industrialized world to see the the footprint or the fingerprint of of the human contribution and that was of course as you know the the the, the root of the arts and crafts movement, which I think many of us admired in terms of the standards or qualities they championed. And I think we're, we're heading towards that. Your question suggests the importance of materials where, you know, artificial wood does not have, if you like, the variety or the weft and weave in terms of the way when you look at it, it doesn't please you in the same way as the real thing. Um, same with stone. Real tiles as against kind of vinyl printed out tiles you might say that you cannot always see it and it doesn't always make a difference and it doesn't always make a difference but we're talking about principles here and I think care care to make a place that is worth living in is something that people love the signs of is that scalable I mean the Eden Project is a wonderful thing in and of itself how do you spread the Eden Project love uh, and vibe and ethos on a much wider scale I think it's actually relatively easy. It's just that most of us who are in this in this business are either shy or arrogant and don't realise that um, a process of local consultation um, and development of ideas can make a radical difference. We're working currently in um, the town of Morecambe in the northwest, um, as well as uh, in the city of Derby in the Midlands. And in both cases, we've engaged with the public to the degree that we have local um, local members teams who come on for the every fortnight um, Zoom, up to a thousand people. Mm. People are really hungry for being consulted, but in a way that is not like, you know, the joke about if Henry Ford had asked what people wanted, they'd have wanted a faster horse. I think part of the job of anybody who wants to excite action is to also do a lot of horizon scanning and provide you know, a bit like a mother bird to the nest, a whole series of things that we've seen or found around the world for people to consider before you ask them what they would like. I think also, um, I'm sure it gets true for you as it is for me, that the pandemic demonstrated to many people uh, two things. One is you could do what you wanted to do from where you live rather than having to be captured by the middle of a city because Zooms and all that sort of stuff made communication easier. But also the realisation that coming towards us like a rocket train um, with 3D printing and what have you is the possibility of a muscular, decentralised state, uh, which uh, casts into question all sorts of things about democracy. Why do you need a government if you can do everything locally? It also asks you about the education of your neighbours, you know, in terms of dealing with the budgets and all the rest of it. But I can see in a very short period of time farmers' markets in every significant town. I can see um, the desire for for the local creation of the products that you want. We're already, I mean, at Eden, we're we're sponsored by um, the motor company Volvo. Um, And they believe, like we do, that the the period they've given is 17 years, that within 17 years they won't have a supply chain anymore 
because they will be printing all of the parts that any of their cars might need by distance digitally and there will be all these um, regional hubs for doing that sort of stuff. I think it's fantastically exciting and when you combine it at this conference, we've talked about agriculture for example and growing, you're actually looking at a world coming towards us in which with, with unlimited renewable energy, which we will be able to have at a greatly reduced cost, you'll be able to grow where you are just about everything you can imagine wanting. Now that will change large-scale monocrop agriculture beyond recognition. You will be creating a mixed agriculture. It will be more labour-intensive and it will be supplying a population who will know that when things are ripe, they can just buy it. It's a very exciting time. So you, you think localism has got a strong connection with how we should move towards when we think about the built environment. But that makes... How does that work? Because, of course, we can't abandon cities. No, but what's happening, we're, we're already uh, working in, in China. We nearly finished a big project there. And one of the things you realise is that they are now exploring um, the, the, village, the villagification of cities mm. because there's an awful lot of evidence that if people can't read... Uh, their cities, they can't feel at home in them, and there's a, a huge incidence of uh, of mental unease and all, all the problems that go with that, which we see all over the West as well as in the East. And I think there's actually going to be a big movement uh, given to us by the most extraordinary piece of luck that at the same moment that we've realised the dissatisfaction with living in cities and want to villagify them, we've got the advent of the um, electric vehicle and the prospect of automatic driving, um, uh, the thought that we might have automatic drivers that are far better than us mortals, actually means you'll be able to rip up an awful lot of concrete and tarmac. Okay. And, and I, can, I can see, if, if I was a property developer, the place I'd be going is all the cities of the world that are really expensive and buy the properties that are next to the noisiest, most polluted roads, because in five years that won't be the case. And you'd probably have to rip up the tarmac and have gardens in front of your smog-ridden house. So that's quite a positive development and you've, and I'm not insinuating anything, but been doing this a long time. How do you feel the conversation has changed? Do you feel that there's a, a louder conversation going on around the importance of sustainable building, of building in line with nature, all the things we're here to discuss? All right, rude answer. Having told me I've been doing it a long time, cheeky person. Um, <laughs> The true answer, this, is, this whole area of discourse has been dominated by people who are, if you like, uh, would be considered right on, alternative, soft left, guardian reading, moosely weaving, open-toed sandal wearing, you know, hippie. Moosely weaving? Yeah, moosely weaving. Okay. And that's a great shame. But what's actually happened has been that the problems have become so clear and present that the establishment has had to embrace some of these ideas. And to their amazement, once they've actually given it a bit of airspace, they realise that, you know, we who've been on that journey, we're not mad people. And I think you're going to see very significant change. I mean, we know from just listening to here at the conference, the construction industry is probably, except for undertaking, the most um, conservative business in the world. I very met, rarely met an exciting property person who, <laughs> let's be honest, I think that's an oxymoron. And I think, to be honest, the, the part of the problem is that property has been associated with another form of wealth, uh, wealth creation, and the people who are into just wealth creation aren't necessarily into the creation of spaces that people remember and get married in and fall in love in and, you know, want to get educated in. 
and the world is full of examples of that and it's very alienating and I think it's very exciting now because a lot of people are feeling a bit like Peter uh, what's he called Peter what's the actor um, the film Network I've gone blank where he shouts out the window I've had enough I've had I'm I'm I'm, I'm I'm mad. It doesn't matter. He was jolly good and he did win an Oscar for it, but um, I've somehow forgotten his name. You were right when you told me I was getting old at the start of this interview. I never said anything of the sort. You implied it. <laughs> you had a look, you had a raised eyebrow. Um, but yes, sorry to summarise, I feel very optimistic about the future. The future of food, the future of energy, the future of water management. The only thing that that I feel slightly less optimistic about is the ability of middle-aged men to let go of their power quickly enough um, because there are a number of things we need to be doing which is to look at the world in systems. We'd have a tendency, even at a conference like this where everybody's trying to be a bit right on, to look at things in siloed compartments when in fact you ought to be accounting for the benefit of your work in terms of people not feeling ill, in terms of people feeling uh, that they have a sense of purpose and all those things because these have got costs somewhere else. And people are just not honest about the cost and the profit and return and the, you know, the natural capital provided and all, well, you know, all that good stuff. We're still very childish and wanting to put things within a ring fence. And I think that's going to be the next stage. We need, we need some cool accountants to come to our assistance um, to actually write business plans and, and, and strategies that take account of illness foregone, you know, education gained, love found, you know, all of those things, yeah. which, are, which are worth probably more than the properties themselves. Yeah. So a much more wholesome approach to a building, basically. I think a wholesome and holistic approach to building a building and building a community. So in terms of the actual materials on a quite basic level, have you been experimenting with anything you think you know, should be adapted more and more widely? Well, we use a lot of bamboo. Um, we use a lot of bamboo. We... Uh, We've got some, quite a lot of uh, mud building. It's funny enough because one of the guys just now was talking about mud building. But we've all of the main wall of our visitor centre, which is over 100 metres long, is rammed earth. We've built two buildings that are out of cob, which is um, clay with straw and horsehair and things like that. I mean, the only problem with those sort of buildings is they take about six months to dry out, you know, to um, uh, in order to bring them into use. But they're all good materials, and I think. Uh, we're, we're, we're about to embark on our most daring piece of construction, which is um, we got planning consent for a hotel and we want it to be built of materials, all of which will have been sourced from within 30 miles. Mm. And that's quite an interesting challenge. So that's just beginning now? Yeah, I suppose it's we're in the middle of. With a very white-faced architect who wasn't expecting such a challenge. <laughs> so you mentioned um, a few times things that have come up at this conference. Have you had your mind and perspective altered from the various talks and conversations you've had here over the day? No. I haven't had my perspective altered. I thought uh, there were some really good contributions. They weren't such as that, that my perspective was changed, but they filled in the picture even more to convince me that we are on the right journey. Mm. And at the same time, we're a bit slow. When you see all the people talking about hedge fund money and investments and all the rest of it, some of the sponsors of this thing, they don't seem to have cracked that climate change is going to critically affect us within a much shorter time frame than they think. I mean, we're already going through it. 
um, but there is a, a, a lack of realization about the clear and present danger that we are in because I don't think they've got the imagination to think of millions of people moving away from where they live because of the climate. And when it happened, boy, would it happen. You know, and I'm an optimist, but I think it's ridiculous to be an optimist and not prepare for what might happen. And all of this stuff about housing, it feels a bit like going to the Chelsea show and having people talking about little copper dibbers. It's not serious. It's not grown up. I think quite a lot of this conversation is for children. It's because it needs to be done at massive scale as if there was a war zone. You need to harness the energy of war to a time of peace. To you be have to start somewhere, don't you? You do. But I think let's have these very first world conversations and then promise ourselves we're going to have made some progress by the time next time we engage with them. I'm just being honest, you know, I just think... At Eden, we're used to doing stuff, you know, and um, it's really interesting how people get shocked that you're doing it. You know, when we drilled 5.3 kilometres down to get heat, everybody, including the government, said it's not worth it, it doesn't work, whatever. And the moment you actually get there and you've got 187 degrees centigrade, you get all of these bozos telling you, oh, we knew it all along. We should invent, this is a vital thing. But, and then you then it doesn't take long before the fossil fuel boys have been in. And they say, yeah, but it's, it's particular to what you've got there. You won't be able to do it everywhere else. I could do it everywhere. This can be done absolutely everywhere. And, you know, I said last night with my tongue not really very far in my cheek, that if I was Prime Minister of Britain, we could be energy independent by 2030. Honestly, we could. So you don't think governments are doing enough? They never have. Governments don't do things. I think it's a really strange question. Governments have never done anything. Governments have always responded to what they feel the mood of the nation is. They never start something. That is why one of the great jokes is when you go on a course, very, very trendy to go on a course about leadership. Leadership is actually about making decisions. Not, it's not a popularity contest about whether people like you. And especially in dangerous times, which these are, Real leadership involves taking decisions which people around you may not like you making, and you've got to find the language to get common cause to achieve marvellous things. So can I ask you finally, obviously it's a passion for you, and I'm not saying you're old, but has been for a very long time, and I just wonder to listeners, pe people who are listening are people who know the subject well and some who don't, and I just wonder what, you know, your messages to people who aren't involved, they're not here, they're maybe not even involved uh, in the built environment, but what's your message to people out there listening who care about these sorts of things? How, how can they make a difference or what can they do in their daily lives? Everybody listening, if you made where you were beautiful, you'll make an immeasurable change to people's lives. There's something life-affirming about seeing that people in your community are bothering to do things for the simple purpose of making it beautiful. Everything else will follow. The care for your community will follow because it's obvious that you care and your neighbour cares and everybody else cares. And then you move in an evolutionary leap from being a consumer into being a citizen, where you suddenly realise that everything you've wanted in your community is unaffordable by politicians. Therefore, they will lose every time they will be seen to be unrespectable. The truth is, we as citizens have got to grow up and readdress the difference between needs and wants. We're like spoiled kids. We've just fed our wants. And when you go around the average house, myself included, I'm not trying to be holding that, you see all the stuff we've got, unbelievable stuff. And we're objecting to paying a bit more for food 
We're objecting to paying a bit more to protect our fellow citizens from climate change. Come on, this is childish stuff. We've got to actually stick together, do something marvellous, which shows that together we are strong. I really mean it. Together we are a pretty incredible species, but we've got to have a narrative that binds us together rather than one that makes us look as if we're going to the sales. <laughs> Tim, thank you very much indeed. We have to end on that note. And I think head down the mountain. Everyone might have left without us. OK, thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to In Line With Nature, brought to you by the Closters Forum, hosted by me, Hannah McInnes, produced by Claire Heaton, and supported by the wonderful team at the Closters Forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts, suggestions, or any questions you might have about the episode. Just send your email to podcast at theclostersforum.com and make sure to tune in for our next instalment.